Welcome, welcome wherever you are this fine day. I don't know for sure that it's a fine day where you are, but here in Colorado, it's a fine day about 300 days a year. The sun comes out. It might be a little chilly. You know, the air does get cool and it can dip down into the 30s on occasion, but it's always a fine day. And if you know Jesus, it's always a fine day anyway. My name is Sean Boonstra. You are listening to the Disclosure Broadcast on the Voice of Prophecy Radio Network. Now, I don't know if you've been paying attention to the healthcare debate in America, but if you actually live in this country like I do, now I'm an immigrant, right, but I live here in America, and if you live here like I do, I'm guessing you're paying very careful attention to that debate. And even if you do happen to live north of the 49th parallel up in Canada like I used to, that's my home country, I'm guessing you're still paying attention because for some reason Americans love to hold out Canadian single-payer health care as an example of what they don't want. And the Canadians love to return the favor saying, well, American health care, that's what we don't want. Um, but the real reason most people pay attention to the debate has nothing to do with economic models or political ideology. I think the real reason people are paying attention to the health debate is because the entire health care system in America is currently in upheaval, and people are wondering whether or not they're going to be safe and secure for the future, or if some big medical event like a heart attack or cancer or a stroke is going to wipe them out financially. So I, it's, it's, it's a tough debate, but I guess one of the good things that has come out of all of this debating, all of this talking, all of this controversy, is actually a higher level of awareness when it comes to issues of health and well-being. People are starting to pay attention to things like diet and exercise and other obvious factors that contribute to our overall well-being. We know, obviously, everybody knows, that diet and exercise can ward off lifestyle diseases like obesity or diabetes. But the question I want to ask today is this. What do you do when you're dealing with illnesses that are not so easy to identify? For example, what if you're dealing with stress, which we know for sure if the stress is bad, if it's a high level, and if it's continual, we know for sure that it can actually lead to physical illnesses. So what do you do? What do you do if you're feeling overwhelmed by all of your day-to-day -day commitments? What if your to-do list at work or at home is so big, so huge, that it actually makes you break out in a cold sweat? You panic a little bit, or maybe you panic a lot to the point where you find yourself struggling to function at all. It's just too overwhelming. What do you do if you're dealing with an addiction problem? And I don't just mean addiction to drugs or alcohol, but all of the addictions that we're faced with these days, screen addictions, some people are wrestling with pornography addictions, behavioral addictions. What do you do with that? How do you deal with the guilt that comes along with some of those addictions because you've been lying or covering up or you find yourself inadequate or an unable to shake off this problematic behavior and your life is now riddled with guilt. You don't know what to think of yourself. Listen, right now, all across the country, millions of people are suffering from the devastating effects of anxiety, stress, and depression. And today, if that describes you, I think you're going to want to stick around for this program because there's a brand new book out that's sitting on the desk in my office. It's called The Power of Hope. And when I read that book, I knew I wanted to meet the authors, and so with me today on the show is one of the authors, Dr. Julian Melgosa, who holds a degree in psychology from the University of Madrid, a doctorate in educational psychology from Andrews University. He's a member of the British Psychological Society, and he specializes in emotional health. 
But I think most importantly, he's here with us today. Dr. Malgosa, welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you for having me. Hey, listen, the book was phenomenal. It's sitting on my desk upstairs. I read it. I was moved to tears at one point. I think it's a book that everybody uh, should get their hands on, and we'll give links in the program today as to where people can find that. I think Ruben, our producer, will put it in the show notes. You co-authored this with Mickelson Borges um, from uh, the University of uh, Santa Catarina, Federal University in Brazil, and Brazil Adventist University. Um, I want to talk about mental health and well-being because that's really one of the key focuses, or foci, I guess, uh, Latin plural, of the book. You, you state in the book, uh, and I'm not sure which chapters you authored and which ones um, Mickelson authored, but uh, in the book it does state there's a clear relationship between thoughts, behavior, and the state of mind. And so here's a question that's always intrigued me because we live in a world— um, where everybody's trying to find, you know, a genetic reason for my behavior, and I can't help myself because it's wired into my genes. And the question that crosses my mind all the time is this. Do our thoughts shape our behavior, or does our behavior actually shape our thoughts? Well, I think it goes in both ways. Uh, there are plenty of uh, studies that uh, show that you can decide or you can have a great a deal of control of uh, your behavior based on your state of mind. You can prepare you yourself mentally to face uh, a challenge or to uh, to meet a person. But it is also true, and it doesn't seem as obvious, that when you engage in certain behavior, it becomes a uh, precursor of a state of mind. For example, if you are uh, engaged in some service behavior. And you do it at the beginning just because, uh, you know, a friend told you, let's go here to distribute this uh, food to to uh, poor people or to, uh, you know, help these sure. uh, ill people. You do it and you repeat it and over and over, and then you start feeling the consequence of a good behavior, which is a peaceful state of mind. It's a sense of accomplishment and satisfaction. And all those are me- mental processes that have come as a result of having done something. Well, doctor, I'm a I'm a natural introvert. I, I actually am probably an off-the-charts introvert, which surprises some people because I live in the public for a living. Are you saying that if I were to put myself out there, you know, get involved? I know my daughters were involved in a local food bank this weekend. Uh, it's not natural for me to go out and relate to a group of people, but I can actually learn to love that atmosphere by doing it? I believe so. I... I it, there are things that are uh, that have limits because of our personality, which is uh, largely inherited, and uh, temperament uh, that set up limits. But that doesn't mean that you cannot uh, go beyond the the, the normal, uh, natural uh, inclinations that that you have just through uh, exercise, practice, doing it. Uh, obviously, there are many beautiful stories of people that have been. Uh, transformed, and they have even changed their their personality just through uh, engaging in behaviors that are positive or they are rewarding. Uh, so yes, you can you can certainly uh, vary your your um, uh, style, your personal style through uh, practice. Well, listen, there is a statement. There is a state. I mean, that's good news to me because. Uh, it's been 25 years I speak publicly for a living, and I've noticed it getting better. It doesn't go away. 
I mean, the, the anxiety I feel doesn't go away, but it certainly improves over, over time. There's a statement in the book that says we are all in control of our thoughts. And I sat back in my chair when I read that statement and I thought this, what if I'm not in control of my thoughts? Because sometimes it feels like my thoughts actually control me. Um, you know, I notice there's a problem. Oh my goodness, the roof is leaking. I'll fix it in the morning. Well, I can't. That thought won't leave my brain all night long and I keep thinking about that. If I feel like my thoughts control me, how do you, I think the phrase in the book is rein in your thoughts. You say that it's possible to actually learn to control your thoughts rather than have your thoughts control you. Well, that is uh, the whole challenge of uh, cognitive behavioral uh, approaches in psychology. Uh, we know that a lot of uh, good things and bad things happen in our lives because we have been thinking about it. Some of the uh, most uh, painful experiences are people who are under the effect of a trauma and they experience post-traumatic stress disorder, for example. There are, there are thoughts that come and all, they, they can not have control over them and they require treatment and treatment is successful, relatively successful. And time does a lot to to uh, you know free oneself from from these thoughts, but that would be an extreme. But yes, in the uh, for example, uh, addictive behaviors. Addictive behaviors are dealt with in in ways that have to do with a process that is called thought stopping. Uh, people who are addicted, say, to food. And they are in a meeting sitting and they are thinking about the, the sweet or the hamburger or whatever it right. is, the nature of their desire. And they are having fantasies over that. And they want to come back to the business, but they just cannot because that is in their mind. And uh, at some point they have to excuse themselves and they have to leave the room because they just want to quickly uh, use the food that they may have in their drawer in their office or, or go outside and buy it. That is the moment where the, the, the uh, psychotherapist will focus on. Whenever those thoughts come, what do you do? And if people are not trained, they haven't been told what to do, they may end up uh, rehearsing, going over and over. So, well, I, I cannot do anything. It's just, it's just so strong that I have to just try to, to, to quench that uh, desire. Uh, well, there are ways to be prepared for that. And being prepared means you know what you are going to do when those strong thoughts come. Usually we think of something to substitute it, something that is already there. It can be an experience of the past, a friendship, a, a, even a movie. It can be for the believer a moment of prayer, a moment that you say stop it and then you just pray and, and pray very fervently until the moment passes because it is true that those obsessive thoughts they are not there all the time. They come and go, like hunger and thirst. Uh, eventually, you have to do something about it. But the critical time of, of the thought, it can be, it can be um, addressed with some preparation. And certainly, many of those things are, are learned in, in the counseling room. And many of those things are learned you know, with people who are interested and they, they just uh, hear ideas or read in self-help books and, and find a way to deal with, uh, with that critical moment that there is an obsessive thought or a recurring thought or a thought of, uh, let's call it, quote, unquote, temptation to behave in, in ways that one does not want to. 
So it sounds like there's actually the possibility—I see that we're up against a break here, but it sounds like what you can do—I heard you use the word replace. Um, is it possible then to lay down a new habit, a new neural pathway, so to speak, over top of the negative habit and retrain yourself to do something positive with that impulse? Absolutely. That is the best way to describe the moment when you are dealing with thoughts that are undecidable. You have something in place, you do it, you practice a few times, you will realize that in the end they, they will stop pushing as they used to. Okay, we're up against the break. I see the clock running out on me. I'm with Dr. Julian Melgosa, co-author of a brand new book from Pacific Press called The Power of Hope. It's a book that gave me a lot of hope, and I think you'll enjoy it too. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. And when we come back from the break, we've been talking about whether or not your thoughts need to control you or you can learn to control your thoughts. And we're going to explore a little bit what benefits the Christian faith might have for this and what the Bible might have. And uh, actually, Dr. Melgosa and his co-author, Mickelson Borges, talk a little bit also about the physiological benefits of improving what goes on in your brain, how you think can affect the state, the health of your physical body. You are listening to Disclosure. My name is Sean Boonstra. This is the flagship program of the Voice of Prophecy Network, and we'll be right back. Retirement planning can be a stressful process, but it doesn't have to be. The friendly people at The Voice of Prophecy can walk you through the entire process and explain all of your options based on your specific needs. Whether you'd like to set up a trust for income or make a gift that will benefit your loved ones and change lives through The Voice of Prophecy, we're here to help. To learn more, call 1-800-348-5993. Earthquakes, tornadoes, wildfires. Around us, homes are being lost, lives are threatened, and some people are asking the question, does God even care about me? The Bible answers that question, and what it says is very encouraging. Find out what God says regarding this topic and some of life's greatest issues in our free Discover Bible Guides. Go to VOP.com and click on Study, or call us 888-456-7933. Hey kids, have you ever had questions like, is there anything or anyone out there other than humans? Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today. You are listening to Disclosure from the Voice of Prophecy Radio Network. My name is Sean Boonstra. For better or for worse, I'll be your host for the next, oh, I guess we have about 42 minutes of programming left today. But uh, you don't want to stick around for me. You want to stick around for our guest, Dr. Julian Melgosa, author of a brand new book, The Power of Hope from Pacific Press. You can find the link to that book on our show notes for today. Dr. Melgosa, just before the break, we were talking about addictive behaviors and compulsive thinking, and you were mentioning that one of the best things you can do is find a substitute behavior. Correct. That is true. Now, listen, we were also mentioning, I, I, I promised before the break that we would look at physiological benefits. There's, it seems to me that, you know, if we're talking about sh- thoughts shaping behavior, behavior shaping thoughts, that there's got to be some kind of, well, there's got to kind of be some sort of spillover into your physical health. Does how you think matter for your physical health? 
Um, absolutely. There are plenty of designs, uh, research designs that consist of uh, dividing uh, people that are coming out of uh, a specific type of surgery and, uh, well, dividing them based on, on some sort of uh, tool, uh, psychological instrument, and finding out whether or not they use, say, positive thinking. Or let's take, for example, gratitude. I can think of a study that uh, was done a couple of years ago in Italy and consisted of uh, classifying uh, women who had been diagnosed with breast cancer and uh, dividing them up into two groups based on uh, psychological testing. The ones who use gratitude in spite of the uh, situation that they were living through and the ones who didn't. And uh, then uh, take a look at how the treatment was progressing, how the uh, various stages of, uh, of healing were reached. And uh, it seemed clear that those who had expressed gratitude or had been having thinking of gratitude were the ones that were more advanced in the uh, uh, after-operation process, in the uh, treatment, and in the general health, physical health, as opposed to those ones who had had a, a low level of gratitude or even, you know, were uh, using remorse or other negative uh, emotions. Gratitude is one uh, of the uh, most uh, studied these days. Uh, factors in both mental and physical health. Well, you mentioned that recovery times are better for people who express gratitude and have a positive outlook. I think I've seen studies years ago that people who laugh more in recovery and enjoy life more tend to recover yeah, more that is quickly. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Laughter is is one of the healthiest things that uh, can happen to people. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, but it's not only the exterior manifestation. Just a a, a mind that is uh, peaceful, a mind that is not anxious about the future because of uh, you know fear of death. Um, that is uh, the, the the best kind of supplementary uh, treatment that uh, someone with a terminal disease can can receive. I, I want to come back to that a little bit later in the program, the fear of death, because Hebrews 2.15 mentions that Christians become free. We're no longer slaves to the fear of death, and that, that's a thought I want to bring up a little bit um, mm -hmm. later on. I, I guess the question that I've got is, okay, I can recover more quickly with the right outlook. Can I prevent disease with the right outlook? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that is a, a established fact from the uh, historic studies of, of stress. Uh, when people are full of fear, when people are under a lot of stress, any uh, proclivity that they may have to uh, acquire a disease, it becomes very, very risky. And uh, uh, people who are very strong, uh, they are much less likely to get a disease in spite of the stress. But everybody has weaknesses. For some, it's the digestive systems. For others, is the cardiovascular um, everybody has a weakness, and stress works negatively on whatever weak point we may have. And yes, indeed, if someone is subject to that sort of uh, influence that uh, you know, comes from the environment and f from their own thoughts, then they, they become closer and closer to contract the, the disease. Um, you know, that, that seems—I I don't know if it's fair to say this, then. It would seem to me that if you adopt a pessimistic worldview and, oh, I'm going to get sick, I'm going to die, just thinking that way 
probably enhances the likelihood that it's actually going to happen. Yes, yes. I have taught uh, undergraduate psychology for many years, and I remember uh, talking to, to students about this, just asking in the classroom. And it was a typical thing of someone that openly would say, well, my roommate was uh, with flu, and I was afraid that it was going, I was going to get it. I was almost certain that I was going to get the flu because <laughs> my roommate had the flu, and I came down with the flu. And surprisingly, I, he- I heard others that says, well, you know, I am, I am protected. I have, I have a good immune system. I'm going to eat well. I'm going to, to, to do exercise. I'm going to be outside and, and breathe a lot of fresh air. And, uh, you know, my mechanism is going to protect me. I have a lot of things to do, and I must do them. I cannot afford being ill. And, uh, you know, in the end, I didn't get sick. These are simple uh, simple. Uh, um, incidental comments and anecdotal uh, quote-unquote evidence, but I think they speak of what the, the truth that is behind, and is that if you are afraid of something, you not that you are going to automatically get it, but you are increasing your chances of getting it, and this happens with especially with infectious uh, diseases. That's fascinating to me, so that your immune system actually seems to be in tune with your thoughts and that you, to some degree, whether consciously or subconsciously, you're actually regulating your immune system. Yes, there is a whole field uh, in medicine that is called psychoneuroimmunology that deals just with this issue. And uh, there are studies for every organic system of the body that are showing a link between the um, emotions, the attitude, the, the approach of life, and the development of various diseases. And this goes uh, from tuberculosis to uh, uh, AIDS to um, um, <clears throat> any, any infectious disease and even non-infectious diseases that get complicated when people are negativistic about their condition or about their circumstance. You know, it's one thing to know then, for me particularly, oh, if I think negatively, I'm actually enhancing the chances of something going wrong. I guess the question is, how do I learn to stop that? The book talks about deceitful and negative self-talk and some of the harmful narratives that we play in our heads. What do we do about it? What are those narratives that we play in our heads? What's negative self-talk? Well, that's a very good concept, and I think the same way that we advise people to uh, to eat vegetables and fruits, and everybody uh, has this clear, very few people have idea on how to uh, care for your mental health, and this is one typical example. What is what is your your self thought that is working against you? Uh, there are people that consider themselves unable to do something, and then they just have a little line that that is something like. This is not for me. Oh, no, this is not for me. And they have repeated that so many times, oh, this is not for me, that in the end, they are closing the door to do uh, a, a broad uh, range of behaviors that uh, would be perfectly fine for them to do. But they have learned to talk to themselves. This is not for me. Or I'm not good at that. Or I'm too young or I'm too old or whatever their particular narrative has been. Those are very dangerous thoughts, and those are the ones that people have to catch, identify, and start replacing with others and and forgetting them because they are illogical. They are just not correct. 
Where do those thoughts come from then? I mean, I would have to assume that that thought got planted in my brain at some point in the past um, and that I'm actually living in the past then. Um, yes, a lot of uh, a lot of the insecurities, a lot of the wrong habits in thinking come from uh, early learning. Whatever my mother, my father, my teacher, my friends have been telling me how they have been reacting to my behavior, uh, it influences some people more than others. They develop their self-concept, they develop their self-idea uh, on what they can do or they cannot do. And uh, if uh, they continue in that line, they, they become convinced of very serious limitations. Uh, and this, this, is just, uh, this is just one example, you know, about ability. This is not for me. But there are plenty of ways to say, think about your past. And I think you mentioned at the beginning, uh, you know, this is something that they treated me that way. So I am caught up with, with this. You know, they abused me when I was a child. Therefore, I am bound to have uh, uh, emotional problems for the rest of, of my life. Well, it is true that, uh, you know, early trauma can work against you, but it is also true that uh, uh, we are able to, to uh, work against that. And for the, for the people who believe, I, I am a person of faith, uh, we also have to trust in a power that, that goes beyond psychology and consists of trusting God that can take the past and turn it into something, into something positive. So going back to those, to those bad thoughts, uh, we need to identify them, and then we need to do something about them. You mentioned faith, and I deeply appreciate that about this book, because it really goes back to the Scriptures and lifts out principles from the Word of God that can help with that. And I think one of the parts that I really deeply appreciated was the quote from Philippians 3, where Paul talks about forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Uh, I press toward the goal for the prize, the upward call of God. So is there an element of faith that helps us move past the past and start looking for the future? Yeah, I, I am convinced of that. Um, that very text that you have mentioned is one of the most beautiful promises uh, that uh, we need to, to uh, become aware of what God wants us to do. And uh, if he wants us to do, I have, if I have a clear purpose in my life, then it just it doesn't matter how uh, strong the past may have been, because I am just looking ahead. And the one that is giving me this assurance from above is the one that is going to lead me there. Now, having said that, we have to also be careful not to think that every single trauma is going to be completely wiped out without doing anything else. God is capable of doing miracles. Sometimes he chooses not to and leave it up to us to uh, work on the, on the things that we as human beings can do. And that is where some of the tips of this book and many other self-help books can help someone to really deal with the past in a natural way. We cannot wipe it up. Uh, you know, someone who went through uh, poverty or certain experiences right. that are bitter, you cannot wipe that out, but you can start looking at it uh, with, with an outlook of, of uh, even the good sides of it. Uh, the fact of having limited resources sometimes, and this is an example of poverty, sometimes help people to really become strong 
to face difficulties with much more toughness than someone that has always had all the resources at hand. Well, look at those things. What has that early experience uh, helped me with? Okay, I'm up against a break, Dr. Melgosa. We have to take that. I want to come right back to that thought because I noticed that in my own life. I'm a the son of immigrants who left Europe after the Second World War, and my grandparents, of course, were Depression era, and I know it affected our thinking. I do want to come back to that thought and then talk about depression a little bit. My doctor, my guest today, not my doctor, my guest is Dr. Julian Melgosa. We'll be right back after this message. Creation. Evolution. Where did the world come from? Where did you come from? Were you created in an instant? Did you evolve from another animal or life species? These are issues that are discussed in classrooms, textbooks, and sometimes around your break table at work when the conversation suddenly turns serious. These kinds of questions are answered in our free Discover Bible Guides. These 26 beautifully illustrated guides cover all the major themes of the Bible and they answer some of the hardest questions of life. You can get your free copy just for the asking by contacting me. Go to VOP.com and click on the tab that says study. That's VOP.com, the tab that says study. Or phone me, 888-456-7933. That's 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides, available just for the asking. And we are back from the break. I hope you had a good rest in the break. And just before we left and went off the air, I mentioned that um, I have my doctor in the house. And I admit I'd, um, I'd misstated that. My guest, I said, I should have said, and said my doctor. However, thinking about it in the break, I thought, well, I, I really am benefiting from this discussion. So for today, Dr. Melgosa is my doctor, and he's helping me understand what happens when we allow negative self-talk to take over our lives and how living in the past causes problems. And, um, and actually, Dr. Melgosa, before we went to the break, I was talking about the fact that I noticed some of what you talked about in my own parents' generation, they fled Europe right after the Second World War. My grandparents were sort of Depression era, and it absolutely affected how they approached life for the rest of their lives. There is always an aspect of the past that shapes how you uh, face the future, right? Absolutely. Yes, there, there, we, we do. We, we grow up in, in certain ways, and we become who we are because of the past that we have lived. So that we cannot erase, but we can make the best out of the, out of the past. The people who have had a good past uh, sometimes even say, well, I would have liked to have some exciting thing. Well, uh, think in terms of how privileged you are to having had that kind of past. And those who have had barriers in their lives, think about how much strength you have gained out of those difficulties. And, and be thankful. Be grateful for that. Um, gratitude, as we mentioned before, is one of the most powerful emotions that we can experience. And there are wonderful experiences of, of, of people and studies that are done with hundreds of individuals that show that uh, gratitude affects not only well-being, but also enhances good health. The, the book refers to depression as excess past, and I think I really liked that phrase. Can, can you help me understand it a little better? Why is depression a case of excess past? Well, depression 
is, in addition to being an, an organic illness, because it has uh, processes that are found in uh, neurotransmitters in the brain, and it has to do with biology, it has to do also with the choice of thoughts. Um, Dr. Aaron Beck, one of the pioneers of uh, cognitive behavioral uh, psychology, initially trained as a psychiatrist, discovered this because when he did his internship as psychiatrist, he found that depressive people had a particular thinking style. This was something that uh, before hadn't been thought about it. He talked to many, he listened to many of them and started to realize that they had a negativistic, catastrophic uh, type of thinking. And then he started to, to realize that it was so uniform that he thought, well, if we could come up with a way to uh, make these people change their thought pattern, then we will be, uh, it, it is likely that they will come to, to normality. And that was the, the beginning of perhaps the most widely used, especially in North America, um, approach to, to the treatment of uh, uh, mental disorders, apart from the, the pharmacological side. Uh, in terms of psychotherapy, it is the most common. And uh, depression is one of those um, disorders that uh, can be successfully treated with uh, cognitive behavioral um, interventions. Consist of helping you to identify thoughts that are illogical, that they are catastrophic, that they are uh, extremely negativistic, uh, thoughts of fear, and start looking at alternatives on what to uh, replace them with. And that is, uh, you know, the reason of that expression. Most of those thoughts have to do with a feeling of misery about one's past and how um, unfortunate I am. And then, of course, if this is accompanied by a uh, natural inclination to the illness, because we are different in that sense. There are people who are more prone and others that are less. So if you get someone who is prone to the disease and is uh, being utilizing these kinds of thoughts, then the illness is almost sure. You know, one of the things that I found interesting in relation to depression is the book talks about the fact that casual sexual encounters can be a causative factor in depression. It can actually lead to a state of depression. And I found that fascinating because, of course, ever since the sexual revolution here in the Western world, there's a lot of casual sex. I mean, there are uh, there are children who don't even know now what the sexual mores and standards of the last generation used to be. And there's a lot of genera uh, a lot of depression that people and anxiety that people seem to be dealing with. Why is there a connection between casual sexual encounters and depression? Um, sex, as God created, it should be a, an experience that is uh, full of uh, uh, love, acceptance, uh, um, intimacy uh, that casual sex does not have. Um, guilt is another ingredient in there. In spite of the sexual revolution of the 60s and the 70s and, and all the um, you know, forgiveness that has been offered about this kind of behavior, there must be something. There must be something in the inner self that still tells you there's something, there's something wrong about this. 
and, and guilt is one of the enemies of mental health. Sometimes guilt is good because it tells us that, uh, you know, we have to change the behavior. But other times, especially when people don't have any principle in terms of uh, uh, I go by these standards, but it's simply a, a uh, diluted guilt that they experience, then is when it's working against them. And I think guilt is one answer to this particular example that you are mentioning. The, the effect of, of, of guilt hasn't been, hasn't been eliminated in spite of the fact of, of giving approval. And of course, what I said at the beginning, what do I gain out of this kind of sex? It's, it's physically enjoyable for, for a limited amount of time, but what is before and after, especially after? And people are left with a sense of, now what? Now, unfortunately, that attraction in many cases is vanishing. There is no attraction right. anymore. And, and that, of course, is a, a mentally unhealthy uh, experience. Now, I'm thinking about the fact that in recent years they've discovered the love hormone, oxytocin, that you actually chemically pair bond to the person you're having that sexual encounter with, and then you walk away from it having been, you know, the Bible talks about the fact that two become one and that it's not the same as other sins because it actually bonds you to that person. And walking away from people's got to leave you with a little bit of guilt in your life. Yes, I, th- I, I agree. I agree with that. I haven't studied that uh, particular uh, topic, but I believe that uh, sex comes in a context of love, acceptance, and that is uh, deprived in a, in a causal, casual uh, sexual encounter. Let me, let me flip it over a little bit, because for me, the past isn't, isn't really what bothers me. I have become a Christian in the last 25 years. I place great hope in the fact that God not only forgives my past, but says, I can make something new out of you. I can make a new creature out of you. And so that's not probably where my struggle lies. I'm probably on the flip side with anxiety, which the book calls excess future. On the one hand, I know the Bible says, consider the ant, you sluggard, right? Preparing for the future is important. I need to think down the road about taking care of my family. But at what point does that become inappropriate, thinking about the future? Um, at what point do I move into irrational anxiety? Most of the times, most of the times when one thinks about the future is, uh, is being exaggerated and is, uh, is uh, in the path of uh, anxious behaviors. We just simply do not know about the future. We can guess about the future. We can see the things coming but we have very little knowledge of it. And whenever we are putting our health, both physically and mental, into something that is uncertain, it's very unwise to do it. Uh, Winston Churchill uh, said a, a sentence about a, uh, a friend of his that was dying, and one of the last things that he said was, in my life I have had many, many worries. Most of them never happened. Right, and that that I think is is something to remember that whenever we are worried too much about the not that we don't have to plan and we don't have to anticipate and be prepared, but when that uh, anticipation uh, fills it up our whole selves of it, uh, especially if it is a negative one, uh, we can indeed uh, accelerate processes of uh, of uh, illness and uh, and and suffer in the process, considering that we don't even know what the future is going to bring us. And this is, in fact, a central 
theme or, or, or is meant to be or was meant to be of the book, The Power of Hope, because hope is what uh, uh, counteracts in this human process of being anxious, of being fearful uh, about about the future, because that's what anxiety is. Of course, anxiety clinically, it comes in, in ways that are sort of by surprise and affect physiological processes also. Uh, so it is an illness as well, but one can feed it being um, um, fearful about anything that is going to happen. So again, we do have certain amount of control over our thoughts, past and future. Past more for depression, future more for anxiety. I think, I know we've got to take another break here in about two minutes, but, and so maybe it's, you know, it's, it's going to be frustrating to start down this road. But the power of hope is not just about the medicine or the psychology. It's also talking about the role of faith and hope and what perhaps the Christian faith has to offer, what the Bible has to offer. Uh, when it comes to depression and anxiety, what is it about Christianity that really helps people conquer that? That's a big topic, but let's get started on it for a couple of minutes. Well, I believe that uh, it is uh, the Bible, and the Bible messages are uh, excellent ways to deal with adverse thinking. Uh, when uh, one memorizes certain verses and uh, repeats those verses in moments of uh, uh, pessimistic thought, for example, and that is something that the, the person of faith has. It's a sort of weapon that other people do not have because they don't believe, they don't think that there is any sacred about those words. Whereas those of us who have faith, then we think that they come from God, and therefore they, they are soothing. Um, I believe that uh, you should memorize scriptures, or at least write them uh, in a little piece of paper and carry them with with you, and uh, pull the little paper or mem or repeat the memorized uh, text in moments uh, that uh, that are difficult. That very exercise is a way of dealing with what the Bible can do for us in, in these difficult times of, of thoughts that are inappropriate. But of course, there is more to it. And it is a belief in something that God has promised for us. And God has promised things for today, for tomorrow, and for eternity. And of right. course, that covers it all. Okay, and we're going we're, yes. we're to take the break, and I want to come right back to that, because I think in the book you identify a few keys that come from the story of Eden that help us be real about the world we live in and find a little relief from stress. My guest today on the program is Dr. Julian Malgosa, co-author of a brand new book called The Power of Hope from Pacific Press. Go to voiceofprophecy.com. We'll put a link in today's show notes so that you can get a copy of that book for yourself. We're talking about stress, anxiety, mental health, and what you can do to live a more abundant life in your thought life as well as your physical life. I'll be right back. As you may know, the Voice of Prophecy is supported by people just like you. We provide Christ-centered programs and Bible studies free of charge so that no one is left out. If you've been blessed by these programs and would like to pay it forward, we invite you to visit VOP.com give to make your tax-deductible donation. We're equipping the world for Christ to come, and your support will make a direct impact on so many lives. That's VOP.com give. Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? 
Are you searching for answers to some of life's biggest questions? The Discover Bible Guides can help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or call us at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. And we are back for the final segment of the program. My guest today has been fantastic, Dr. Julian Melgosa, co-author of The Power of Hope. We've been talking about things like depression, anxiety, stress, and uh, and then we were starting to talk about faith and the words of the Bible. And Dr. Melgosa, you've been talking about read the Scripture, memorize the Scripture, find the comfort that those words have to offer. I think one of the things that really grabbed me in the book is the statement, Pandora does not exist. And I think that um, Pandora would be that mythical world in the James Cameron movie. It's a utopia, and I guess utopia doesn't exist. And the book talks about coming face-to-face and accepting the real world the way that it is, not having unreal expectations. Um And I'm wondering sometimes if utopia, these utopian ideas like Pandora, aren't just our memory of Eden. The Bible says God has put eternity in the human hearts. We all seem to have a memory of a better world. And I wonder sometimes if the broken—I mean, I think the Bible offers a good explanation as to why our world is hard and why it's broken. Is sin a part—is our sinful fallen state a part of our depression and anxiety? Is that a root cause? Well, it may be in the sense that uh, the uh, performance of certain acts that are called um, sins in the Bible uh, will bring about consequences that uh, that have uh, to do with with depressive uh, disorder. Uh, some of the symptoms of depression uh, have to do with uh, uh, having uh, very little motivation, uh, very little strength uh, to sleeping, uh, you know, uh, too little or perhaps too much every day to be agitated, to to be having feelings of uh, worthlessness. Um, Obviously, as we have just uh, mentioned, a uh, free casual uh, sex uh, may bring feelings that are not good. So there is some sort of correlation. But I also would like to make a statement in terms of we cannot uh, judge a person that is suffering from depressive symptoms as someone who has moved away from the Lord. Great point. Uh, It's a very dangerous thing. So, uh, yes, I mean, we are touched. Uh, We have every single painful uh, disease or experience in the world, we have to point it out to, to, to the side of evil that there is in, in, in our existence. Um, but let's also be careful and caring for the people who suffer from uh, mental illness, and uh, they are not any uh, worse sinners than the rest of the healthy people as well. Excellent. I'm thinking of that story of the man born blind where the disciples say, what did his parents do, Jesus? What did they do that he deserved this? Um, And the fact is, bad things happen in a broken world, and it's not necessarily because you've done something wrong. We just live in a broken world. And I take great comfort from the fact that when I read the Bible, it tells me that God knows the world is broken, and he has a plan to restore it. He's not ignorant of the suffering that we endure. Um, That brings me huge hope. And I'm not even afraid of death anymore, right? That comes up in the book. Death is mentioned a number of times. I don't even have to be anxious about death as a Christian. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is, uh, of course, is a, is a theoretical thought because a person that is facing death, uh, even persons of faith, is very rare that they will not have certain amount right. of of fear. Uh, but uh, absolutely, it can be a support uh, that, especially a, a peaceful death that is not, uh, uh, you know, a sudden death that that approaches very very quickly. Um, it's it's just a a, a change of uh, of a status. Is the understanding that. Uh, when I go to sleep, I am dead, but I'm going to wake up and I'm going to see Jesus. Those thoughts are are wonderful. I have thought to, I have talked to people who who were facing death or they were uh, on a terminal uh, disease, and people who are believers. Uh, I ask them, what what are the things that that occupy your mind? They say, well, I think of of the of the 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 new earth that the Lord will have prepared or is preparing for me. I think quite a bit about life in in that setting. And that that is that is a a, a wonderful way of of approaching death, you know. There is nothing that is going to end everything is actually um uh, a different stage that is eternal and is glorious and is and is absolutely healthy that will come after after this life. Uh so Yes, having having the religious hope, because in psychology we talk about hope, hope that things will be better. That is healthy. That that's definitely healthy, but it is not complete. Uh, religious hope is complete in the sense that goes beyond death into eternity. One of the things that I really like, you mentioned eternity, and we've touched on Eden and, and things. The topic of the Sabbath comes up in this book, and it's in the context of stress. In the book, stress is called. Uh, excess present, uh, anxiety is excess future, depression, excess past, stress can be defined as excess present, and then you bring up the biblical Sabbath. Now, I've heard people, even people of faith, say, oh, what a burden the Sabbath is, that's an oppression, and and that really ruins your life. I've got to say that I discovered the Sabbath 25 years ago. I don't find it oppressive at all. I found it a huge gift. What is the role of the Sabbath? What is God's gift in the Sabbath that um, that really can help us with uh, a well-balanced mental health outlook. Hey, the Sabbath has many purposes, and uh, they are all very beneficial for for uh, or beneficial for our health and for our uh, mind. And uh, one of them is to keep us away from the business of uh, every day of the of the previous week. I remember very distinctly. Uh, in my days of, I was beginning my career, and there was uh, this uh, woman who had a husband who was a contractor that had lots of work, and one day came to me and said, you know, I think the Sabbath has saved the life of my husband, because if he hadn't been for the Sabbath, where he comes to stop or all the demand that he has for work and keeps the Sabbath 24 hours without worrying and without working about his normal work, he already would be dead. That was her. Of course, it may have been exaggerated, but it was a reality of how the Sabbath was saving the life of the, on this particular individual. So we're talking about um, uh, freeing from, from the slavery of having to work all the time, uh, but especially having the opportunity to uh, meet the Creator and to be able to spend more time in prayer, more time in worship, more time in fellowship, more time in witnessing that will bring a, uh, a, an excellent peace 
that only can be achieved through a Sabbath day. You know, I find it interesting. If the Sabbath is about getting close to the Creator God, then it would only make sense that if you use those 24 hours to know Him better, the better you would know God, wouldn't you say that things like stress and anxiety um, come into a better focus? Maybe you can place them where they belong when you get to know that there is a God who both loves you and is in control. Yes, certainly. Uh, many people have experienced that having a very close friendship with the Lord has uh, brought a lot of peace to their lives. And if they use that 24 hours in the Sabbath or a number of hours that uh, that you can reasonably spend uh, apart from, you know, sleeping and uh, taking care of, uh, of your own needs, um, but not only on the Sabbath, but uh, frequent encounters with God through little prayer here, little prayer there, thought here, thought there. Uh, it's a way of uh, having uh, a perspective that uh, if we were not doing things like that, we would be just very myopic in looking at things and then becoming very worried, very anxious of things that with the right perspective, they are meaningless, really. You, you mentioned in the book, oh, you actually, you mentioned at the, the head of the program, at the top of the show today, uh, acts of service. You mentioned, you know, going out and doing things. And the book talks about acts of service as a treatment for depression. It would seem to me that in, in that case, you're not just getting to know God better, you're maybe replicating his character in your own life. How does that work? How would an act of service help me overcome depressive thoughts? Uh, it is. It is. In fact, I mentioned gratitude in terms of attitude and uh, altruistic behavior. Service behavior is the acting part that is being found to have a tremendous effect on on depression. Um, the depressive person tends to think about oneself and about the uh, miserable life that they have to 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 live. And we cannot be judging them wrongly because because that is, those are kinds of thoughts that are that are partly produced because of chemical or neurochemical processes in the in the brain. But it is also true that they have a lot of control over how they are going to think of themselves and their surroundings and their future. And the person who um, uh, is serving others, it will mm, temporarily be putting the thoughts that normally come about the negative self and the negative circumstances into the service to others that have a need, that you can see that their need is, is met via something that you are doing for them. All that time, it is being taken away from, from, from yourself. And all that time is being uh, looking at uh, something that in spite of your situation, you can do for others. It is innate that we have that great satisfaction of doing something good for someone else, and that enhances the, the feeling of misery that the depressive per person uh, has. Uh, for the believer, it has even more meaning, because it is being more like Christ. Right. Uh, th this, this prescription of service is done by uh, psychotherapists that don't even believe, but they know really? that this works, and then they, they assign people to uh, volunteer, to do things for the community, to help people in need, et cetera, et cetera. And that's wonderful. But, but for the believer, it has even more meaning because is being like Jesus. 
Uh, fantastic. Listen, I can't believe we're out of time. I wish I had five hours with you today because this material is fantastic. The Power of Hope, one of the best little books I've ever read on emotional health, anxiety, depression, stress. If somebody today is wrestling, Dr. Melgosa, you know, maybe life's overwhelming. They're, they're having a little trouble getting out of bed in the morning. They don't want to face today. Uh, they're uptight. They're anxious about the future. What's their first step? I mean, obviously, get a copy of this book. That's my first recommendation to you out there. Go get a copy of The Power of Hope. I'll put a link on our website at The Voice of Prophecy. But what's the first step for somebody who wants to come out of that dark hole? Well, you just mentioned a perfect example for depression. That's, that's the lack of motivation. Not being able to get out of bed and starting the day is, is the first step, the first challenge that depressive people have. Uh, they need to find some sort of external support. They need to find a, a spouse, a friend, someone who will be there either with a text or with a telephone call telling, okay, we are going to go and I will be waiting for you at this time outside your door, um, giving, giving them the push to, to, to do it. This is from the human viewpoint. If a person has the faith to pray God and believe that God can do uh, can can supply the, the the energy that they don't have is Lord help me today. Um, you are going to be with me all the time. Uh, me, my mood will become better as I encounter people and as I do things. Be with me. Help me now. Uh, those are the sort of uh, supports that one needs to start the day. And then once once they start, they 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 are more able to to keep going. A depressive person shouldn't be left alone. Of course, there are risks of suicide. Right. There are problems that are very complicated. So they need support. And I see that the sources of support uh, right there, another friend, another person, and also have faith in God that, that, that God can give me that little extra push that I don't have. That would be my advice for that person early in the morning. Dr. Melgosa, I can't believe it. The clock is going to run out of time in about 30 seconds. I want to thank you so much for joining me on the show today and helping underline the fact that it's not hopeless. We do live in a broken world and things happen, but you don't have to live in a constant state of anxiety or depression or stress. The name of the book, The Power of Hope. You can find it at thevoiceofprophecy.com. Look in the show notes and we'll put a link there. Doctor, thank you so much for your time today. And I know you're busy. But thanks for joining me on the show. Um, well, thank you for inviting me. It has been my pleasure to talk to you, and I wish you success and that you may be able to help uh, with this uh, little practical book. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Disclosure. I'm Sean Boonstra. Until next time.